1 Thessalonians 5. Let me read verse, I think I put verse 23 on the slide. I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. And I pray that you'd bless our time as we study more of the scriptures and we learn from our confession and those who've gone before us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be sanctified even through this very study of the doctrine of sanctification. Lord, I believe that there are some here who truly desire to be sanctified with with good and right motives. I believe there are probably some here who like the idea of sanctification, but uh, there are still very many areas within their own hearts that need to be uncovered. So Lord, ultimately only you know exactly what needs to be done in each individual heart here. And so I ask that you would do that for us this evening, that you would take your word and that you would make it very clear and that you'd sanctify your people for the sake of Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Let me recap very briefly the doctrine of sanctification that we've studied so far. I do this because I like to do recaps and because whenever Christy and I were discussing this, maybe yesterday or the day before, I realized that maybe I should do a recap <laughs> and clarify some things. So... We began by taking note of the fact that sanctification is not, here's the key word, merely a process. It is a process. But it doesn't begin, it isn't merely a process, it begins at a point in time in which there is a definitive work done. So there's a definitive work that happens. And from that point, a person who has been definitively sanctified in the language of the confession, united to Christ, effectually called, regenerated, we could add to that justified through faith. That person who's been definitively set apart then is progressively sanctified, continues from there. So it's not merely definitive. It's not as if something happens to us at a moment in time and that's it. It's also not merely progressive as if it's only a process and nobody ever actually experiences, experiences a real change, a definitive change. It begins definitively and then moves on progressively from there. And the process that we will experience, and we'll talk more about this this evening, but what we've already seen is it covers a negative and a positive. We're always in this process destroying the body of sin within us, mortifying the flesh, and then the positive aspect is quickening the principle of grace within us. 
So we're putting to death and we're quickening that principle of grace. And all of that takes place through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. He died and was raised. The effectual power of His death is made over to us. The effectual power of His resurrection is made over to us so that we are consistently applying the death. So we're dying to ourselves. We're dying. But we're also consistently, and I should say the Spirit is consistently, applying His resurrection so that we are consistently walking in newness of life. For Christ, this might help the picture, for Christ He had no sinful nature. So for Him, He dies and He walks out of the grave and the work is finished. He, he walks out completely finished with the work. We have a corrupt nature that remains. And so while we can walk in that post-grave life, we still carry within us the effects of corruption. We'll talk about that tonight. So we're picking up at paragraph chapter 2 which I've entitled The Process of Sanctification. What can we sort of expect in addition to this putting to death the whole body of sin and, and quickening the graces within us, what else can we expect? And since the last several lessons have been longer than I had wanted, and I really wanted to finish this chapter tonight, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to cover one paragraph. Um, and so hopefully we'll be out of here a little quicker the process of sanctification. So this is what we can expect to be the ongoing process or the ongoing experience in the life of a Christian in progressive sanctification which flows from the definitive sanctification. So this paragraph says, this sanctification is throughout the whole man. Or throughout and in the whole man. The progressive work of sanctification is throughout, comma, in the whole man. So then we can ask, what constitutes the whole man? If we can identify what the whole man is, then we can go ahead and have in our minds a picture of what is going to be sanctified, what's going to be made more and more holy. What is actually going to be experiencing this mortification and this quickening? Well. We've talked about the nature of a man before. A man is essentially a, a material part and an immaterial part. Man is body and man is soul or spirit. And I'm not going to get into trichotomy or dichotomy in our, in our consideration for tonight. The soul and the spirit, I'm going to use those synonymously as do the scriptures. So there's the body and then there is the immaterial, the soul, the spirit. So what the confession is saying and what we believe is that progressive sanctification takes place in both the material part and the immaterial part. The part you can't see and you can't touch of those who've been born again. Now why is this? Because that's what's been affected by the fall. Remember the doctrine of total depravity. We go back to chapter 6, paragraph 2. Because of our fall in Adam, we have become, and here's the, what the confession says, and what we believe the scriptures teach, dead in sin and wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly defiled in all the faculties of and parts of soul and body. Some text to support this. 
Titus 1.15b, To the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now the mind and the conscience, that's immaterial. That's a part of the a faculty of the soul. Genesis 6.5, referring to mankind, says, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Intentions, thoughts, heart, that's all immaterial. Those are faculties of the soul. But what's one of the most prominent passages we go to in the New Testament to describe the, the wickedness of men? Romans 3, verse 13 through 15, their throat is an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. They're, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. These are not immaterial parts. These are physical body parts. The actions of the throat and tongues and lips and mouths and feet are physical actions. Now they are acting out of the overflow of the evil of the heart. Our Lord says in Matthew 15, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's immaterial. Murder. Well, that could be considered hate in the heart, but it could also be physical murder. Adultery. Sexual immorality. Theft. False witness, slander, these are what defile a person. Again, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, these are actions of the physical body. The body, because of depravity, the body is under the leadership of a wicked heart. So the physical actions of the physical body proceed from the evil of the heart. So all of these actions flow from the evil of the heart, but they're actions nonetheless. They're still physical things that you're doing. That's our condition after the fall. All faculties and parts of soul and body. So if the whole man in all faculties and parts of soul and body has been corrupted, then the whole man in all the faculties and parts of soul and body, is to be sanctified. Christ does not render an incomplete salvation. He's not doing an incomplete restoration. He's fixing everything that has been destroyed by sin. And so that brings us to the text that I read at the beginning, where Paul says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. This is his prayer for them. And may your whole spirit and soul, that's immaterial part, and body, material part, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is complete sanctification? It is sanctification of the spirit, soul, and body. Now, how does this happen? Well, we've seen already and considered what happened in regeneration. We are given a new heart. There's a new principle of grace created within us. And so now, if you're a believer, all of the faculties of your soul, your mind, your affections, your will, they're functioning under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And when I picture it, we're under the influence, but also springing up from the soil of the Holy Spirit within. 
These faculties, mind, affection, will, they're brought more and more into subjection to the Spirit. So my mind functions increasingly more like the mind of Christ. My affections become increasingly more like the affections of Christ. My will is bent more and more after the, the will of Christ. These are all immaterial parts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there is an internal light, knowledge, heart, internal illumination and understanding of the glory of God in Christ. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's not physical eyes. That's the, the heart, the immaterial part. Colossians 3.10, Paul says to put on the new self that's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All of these are immaterial things that the Spirit is doing in a regenerate person. We've talked, I feel like we've covered that fairly well. What we have to understand and what I want to give a little more time to now is that the body also undergoes a change. Remember that our physical actions flow from the heart. Paul says that it is a fruit of the Spirit to control yourself. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So if you've got the Spirit in you, one of the things that He's going to produce is your ability to control yourself. Self-control. And so in sanctification, the physical body comes more and more into subjection to the newly functioning faculties of the soul. Your body houses your soul and all of those immaterial faculties. If those internal things are being changed, then the fruit, the actions of your body are going to be changed. And one of those is that you learn to control your body. And so the actions of your physical body become more and more like those of Christ's own personal actions. Now this doesn't mean we live out the life that He lived, but we act in a way that would be commensurate to the way Christ acted. Do we believe that Christ, the Lord Jesus, is a physical man who actually walked on this earth? Of course. Aside from sin, he, he did not inherit the, the, the sinful uh, corruption of nature from Adam. But apart from that, he was still born as a man under the effects of the fall. He got sleepy. He got tired. He got hungry. He got weary. He had a physical body just like us and yet never sinned. So if the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, then we know that the Lord Jesus, more than anybody who's ever walked the earth, was able to control His self, His physical body. Romans 6, remember this is the passage for sanctification, definitive and progressive. But Romans 6, beginning at verse 12, Paul says, after he's described the fact that you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, he goes on to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. That's your physical body, your mortal body. Here's the negative. Do not present your members, and I believe there he's talking about the members of the mortal body, your physical members. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but, here's the positive, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For... Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. 
or under law, but under grace. Your physical members, don't give them to unrighteousness. Present them to God as instruments for righteousness. God, here are my hands, here are my feet. Use them. Because we've been buried with Christ and raised to life with Christ, we can, if you're a Christian, you have the ability to give over, present your mortal body to be used by God for righteousness. We may not, if you're a Christian, well, anybody really, we use words like can and may. We may not, you may not present your physical mortal body to sin. Can you? Do you have the ability? Sure. Are you allowed to? No, sir. No, ma'am. You may not present your body. It is never excusable to give over your body to sin. If you're a Christian, you have the power to actually carry that out. Because you're not under law, you're under grace. You've got the grace of God working in you to empower that activity. Now we do have a definitively, we talk about definitive and progressive, we do have a definitively altered physical body. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you, speaking of your body, you're not your own. From the moment of regeneration, the Holy Spirit comes in to indwell. From that moment, your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In an instant. He dwells there. Not your body. His. His temple. 1 Corinthians 6.15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And there the context is, shall we take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? That's physical. Your physical body is a member of Christ. From the, the moment of spiritual union, your physical body comes to be a member of Christ. What is this? One of the specifics of this is found in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 where Paul makes this reference. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now think about that. What's going to be rising? Dead bodies. Dead bodies are going to rise out of the ground. If those dead bodies were the bodies of the saints, they are dead bodies in union with Christ because in life they were members of Christ. When they're in the ground, they're members of Christ. They're dead and yet they're in Christ and those mortal bodies are going to be raised up out of the ground. So all of that is a definitive from the moment. Now, you don't, you don't look any different on the outside. You may look the same, but the Spirit dwells within you. You are a member of Christ. Your physical body belongs to Christ. And so, in light of that fact, Paul can then give commands with regard to progressive sanctification. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now let's think about what he's just said. 
Control your own body. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. What is a passion of lust? Let's think about this for a second. Men and women have God-given natural instincts. In the context, we're talking about sexual purity. Men and women have God-given natural instincts that attract them to the opposite sex. That's natural. And at a certain time in life, the hormones in a person kick in and begin to drive those instincts and all of a sudden, instincts begin to come alive and begin to act inside a person's physical body. Everybody get where I'm going? That's, we agree there. Now your sinful nature, the corruption within you, this is a, an effect of the fall, is that you allow those hormones, those instincts to lead the way. So that your physical body is just given free reign to do whatever it feels instinctively. We call these the animal instincts. Whatever it feels like it ought to do, it just does. That's what carnal men do. If it feels good, do it. If it feels like instinct, do it. If your hormones are drawing you that way, do it. That's the way carnal men live. Paul says, do not allow that to happen. Don't do that. Sanctification involves bringing natural hormonal instincts into submission. I feel this, but I can't act that way. I must control that. As Paul would say, I, I pummel my body into submission. So Paul's saying natural, God-given hormones are never an excuse to indulge in sexual immorality. Now, how many of us would agree that that logic makes sense for a regenerate person? I don't think any of us would, would disagree, I think we, we, we would all agree, that no man in this room is allowed a pass to act out the sinful lusts of his hormonal instincts and get by with it using this excuse, well, it's just my hormones. God made me this way. We would say, no, you can't do that. It's not an excuse. And I think the men would agree, because we've talked about it on Saturdays, the sinful lusts and the things that arise in a man's heart and mind, if the women knew what they were, they would probably just want to stay in the house and not go out in public if they knew the things that went through men's minds. These types of natural hormonal lusts that come out. Paul says, you don't let that lead. You're sanctified. You get that under control. You don't follow that. You're to be sanctified. Control yourself. Now we all agree with that, right? That's clear. So I think we should also take that to the other side and ask, why do women often get a pass? Their monthly cycle comes along. Oh, it's my hormones. And so I can talk like I want, treat people like I want, act like I want. It's my hormones. Or pregnancy hormones kick in before and after pregnancy. Well, it's pregnancy hormones. My hormones are just all out of whack. Paul says, no, nah, you're not an animal. Get that under control. 
Carnal men are led by their instincts. Carnal men are led by their lusts. Sanctified people get that under control. Oh, I don't have the strength. He's given you the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You have the strength. It's our physical body. Control your physical bodies in light of the ever-increasing holiness of mind and heart. We're not animals to be controlled by the instincts and hormones that come to us simply by nature. The strongest, this, this idea is a very strong contrast to an ancient heresy that apparently still exists that taught that the physical part of a person and even the physical world is at best irrelevant, inconsequential. But at worst, the physical is only ever evil. There's nothing good about the physical. We see this was a problem in Corinth. There's nothing good about the physical. The physical is a, is a castaway. Forget it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't... It, just do whatever you want with the physical. All that matters is the spiritual, what you can't see. And a lot of Christians still believe this today. That as long as my mind thinks right, as long as I confess rightly, as long as I read the right books, I can do whatever I want to with my body. As long as I read Edwards, I don't have to eat like Edwards. I can eat like me. As long as I'm reading the right guys, as long as I'm confessing the right things, my physical body, it's going to die. So it doesn't matter what I eat. It doesn't matter whether I exercise. It doesn't matter what I tattoo. It doesn't matter what I pierce, what drugs I put into it, what chemicals I put on it, what pills I pop in my mouth. None of that matters. It's, this is just my physical body. As long as I'm believing rightly, saying the right things about Christ, well, that's all that matters. That's heresy. That's Gnosticism. That's damnable heresy outside of the Christian faith. We, we don't believe that. If you're a Christian, Paul would say, you're not your own. And that's not just your spirit. Your body does not belong to you. Your physical body is being sanctified. And so your physical actions are going to become more holy. And someday your physical body will be raised up. And all the garbage that we put in it and drew on it is going to have to be cleaned off. To be glorified. If it's going to have to be undone to be glorified, it's best just not to do it before then. Why? Because it's not yours. It belongs to God. It's been consecrated to His service. It's not just for you to use to achieve your plans for your three score and ten. And most, many professing Christians never see their three score and ten because at some point they've decided they're, they're going to treat their physical body however they want to. The single instrument, you only got one, the single instrument that God has given you to advance His kingdom on the physical earth until the grave, we trash it. And we act like, well, it's just my body. It's reformed Gnosticism that we live in. In the progressive work of the Holy Spirit within us, through the Word of God, we can and should expect that our thoughts, our affections, our will, and even the physical senses of the body will be made more and more holy unto the Lord. And I think we've all talked to people who have said, I used to do that all the time. I don't even crave that taste anymore. I don't even want it. The smell makes me sick. I don't want to be around it. And it might be because their mind associates that taste with the wickedness they used to be involved in. And the Spirit says, yeah, stay away from that. And they are sanctified. 
Their physical body comes under the power of the Holy Spirit. But, continuing in the confession, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. In other words, we're not going to be completed in this work as long as we are in these bodies. Now that's very easy to see when we think about the physical body because it's going to end in death. It has to die. The physical body, although it is strengthened to overcome lusts and passions, is nevertheless a body not fitted for eternity. It can't live forever. Even if, you, even if Christ returns before you die, the physical body will have to be glorified. Why is this? Because, the confession says, there abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part. We will always retain some effects of the fall in body and soul. Always. When it comes to the mind, there are always going to be things we don't know. Things we can't learn clearly. Things we can't articulate just as we ought to or we want to. There will always be physical lusts competing with what we know we ought to be doing. There will always be times when I know that I ought to be up reading, but I really, really like the way the comforter feels right now. Physical ailments and disappointments. I just think about how disappointing it is to be in prayer and have to go to the bathroom. How, how depressing is that? My physical body will not allow me to continue in communion with God in this way. That upsets me. Someday, I'll never have to worry about that again. But until we die, those are the types of things. Some of them very awful and some of them just, you know, it's just the sad state of what, how we are. But we're going to be like that until we die. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And the flesh there is a reference to that old corruption that remains. It's still there. It's being weakened through sanctification. It's getting weaker, but it's still there. There's nothing good there. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And I want to show you another one of... The way this is probably the text that most people think of to support this idea that sanctification is not complete in this life. Philippians 3, which is becoming increasingly one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. In Philippians 3, and I'll begin reading at verse 10, Paul's describing what is essentially sanctification. This is what he's striving after. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. Now the power of His resurrection, Paul's saying, I want to walk in that newness of life, the resurrection life. Share in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. That's mortification and dying to self. It's, it's bearing in the body the death of Christ and walking in the newness of life given to us through the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul's striving after. Matthew Henry, commentating on that phrase, to know Him and the power of His resurrection, may share in His suffering, says, This is feeling, notice this familiar language, feeling the transforming efficacy and virtue of them. That's his goal. That is the Christian life. It's the language of our confession. The virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. This is what we are striving after. If you want to know Christ, if you really want to know Christ, there's only one way. Share in His sufferings. 
We talked about this, somebody talked about this recently. We don't really want to know Christ if we're not willing to suffer. If we're not willing to feel the cutting, shearing, grinding pain of mortifying our flesh and dying to ourselves, we'll never know Him. Because that was His life. That, that's, that's what He did. And that's what Paul's saying. I want to walk in that. And he describes the completion of this process in this phrase, verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's future. That's Paul's aim. Glorification. Not death, but glorification. That's what he's looking forward to. And so then in verse 12, he reminds us that his, even his sanctification was still imperfect. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Is sanctification complete in this life? No. We're not going to be perfected in this life. Perfection comes not even at death. The process is complete at the resurrection. That's why Paul says, if we would ask him, what are you pressing towards? Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing on, yes, to death, but ultimately to the resurrection of the physical body. Our final shared suffering with Christ in this life is when we die. When we are faithful unto death, we will share that with our Lord. And that faithfulness unto death will be rewarded someday in our resurrection. While we suffer many things in life and must daily die to ourselves, like our Lord, apart from physical death, these are incomplete. We have to follow Him as far as He went. And He went to death. And when we cross that threshold, we will experience in that moment a perfection of soul. The souls of righteous men made perfect dwell in the intermediate state, but at the resurrection of the dead, on the final day, when Christ comes in all of His glory, then we will experience final glorification. See how the process maintains. Negative, then positive. Death precedes glory. Suffering comes first. Christ is always our model. We look to Him. We should not expect to have any glory prior to suffering, at least a physical death, if our Lord didn't even get that privilege. That was His model. He said it for us. So some remnants of corruption remain in every part until we're glorified. The confession continues. Whence ariseth, the word whence means from which place, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. From the remaining corruption, and this is very, very important, from the remaining corruption, there remains a war. And that war is continual and it is irreconcilable. The fact that it's continual lets us know that it's ongoing, it's always, forever in this life, there will always be a war. For the true saints of God, the internal war does not stop. It's not fearful when a person notices and experiences the war. It's fearful when they don't notice the war, when there is no fighting, when there is no battle within. That's scary. But when you're feeling this war, that's one way to discern the Spirit of God is actually in me. It's a continual war, 
perhaps even more important than that, we need to understand that it's an irreconcilable war. These two sides cannot be brought together because the war is between the old man, the remaining corruption, and the new principle of grace, the new creature. These are not reconcilable parties. Remember, sanctification is not a reworking of the old corrupt nature. They're always going to be at war. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 7, we reference this text a lot to describe the depravity of man, the inability and unwillingness of man to come to God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, this is a bad translation. Because when we read that, it gives the impression that the word hostile, hostile, is an adjective describing the mind that is set on the flesh. In the original, the word is not an adjective. It's a noun, not an adjective. It's not describing the mind. It's telling us what the mind is. As the King James says, it is, it is enmity. If we wanted to use this language, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostility. Not it's hostile, it is hostility itself. Paul's not saying that your fleshly mind is a hostile mind. He's saying that your fleshly mind is hostility. It is enmity. It's not an enemy. Enemies can be reconciled. Enmity itself cannot be reconciled. It remains enmity. So there's always an irreconcilable war between the enmity that is in us and the spirit that is in us. Now what does this war look like? The confession continues, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And we have two texts, 1 Peter 2.11 and Galatians 5. 17, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So that phrase, lusting against in the confession, means desiring the contrary, waging war, carrying on opposition within, opposition against the Spirit. The flesh is that old man, that remaining corruption within us. It wars, it opposes, it lusts against. And notice in the confession and in Galatians 5, it's a capital S. The Spirit of God, not just my soul, but God Himself, God in me. Remember, in regeneration, it's the Holy Spirit who's come and dwelt within me. Now, this is important too. If we go back to Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile or is enmity against God. 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The enmity that is within you and the enmity that is within me is a war against God. It is the corruption in me versus God in me. That's why it's irreconcilable. Let me read to you from John Owen. And I got a lot of this from Owen. Let me read to you what he's, he's talking about, enmity against God. He says, its proper formal object is God. It is enmity against God. Its nature and formal design is to oppose God. God as the lawgiver. God as holy. God as the author of the gospel. A way of salvation by grace and not by works. This is the direct object of the law of sin. Before this, he talked about what it meant to have a law of sin within him. Why doth it oppose duty? So that the good we would do, we do not either as to matter or manner? Why doth it render the soul carnal, indisposed, unbelieving, unspiritual, weary, wandering? It is because of its enmity to God, whom the soul aims to have communion with all in duty. In other words, the reason your corrupt nature wars against all of the duties that you're trying to carry out as a believer is because it hates the God you're trying to commune with. That law of sin is warring against God. He says, this is our state and condition. All the opposition that ariseth in us unto anything that is spiritually good, whether it be from darkness in the mind or aversion in the will or sloth in the affections, all the secret arguings and reasonings that are in the soul in pursuit of them, the direct object of them is God Himself. The enmity lies against Him which consideration should, sure, should influence us to a perpetual, constant watchfulness over ourselves. And he says a little bit later, and I thought this was... Think on this. Every act of sin is a fruit of being weary of God because the corruption is at war against God. It's enmity against God. So the Spirit dwells within me. Corruption remains in this life. Corruption is enmity itself against God. Enmity can't be reconciled. It can only be destroyed. Enmity will be destroyed when Christ returns. Therefore, the war within me remains until that day, until Christ returns. Even, even when I die, the corruption is still going to be working as my body decomposes in the dirt and the worms eat me from the inside out, or from the outside in, however that's going to work. That's corruption, still working. I'm still going to be decaying in the grave. But when He returns, all of that stops. And there is no more corruption, no more decay. Now let me conclude with three points of application. First, we need to expect sanctification in the whole man. Expect Sanctification in the whole man. To expect doesn't mean that I'm just going to sit here and wait for God to sanctify me. Sanctification, like repentance, when we talk about these things as works of God, we need to be careful that we don't just say, All right, God, give it. And we just wait. Because it's also something that we have to do. But as we do it, and as God works it in us, we must expect it to happen throughout the whole man. So it's going to be mental. Growing in Christ's likeness means learning new truths. 
Studying the Scriptures, deepening and broadening your mental grasp of what is revealed in the Scriptures, taking advantage of 19 centuries of gifts to the church as they, with their understanding, unpacked what God has revealed in the Scriptures. Your mind, you have to use your mind. There's no way to be sanctified without learning a new fact, a new truth, from time to time from God's Word. It'll also be affectionate. Sanctification is Affectionate. There will be a growing in your affectionate responses to the things that God has revealed in His Word. Good things are going to stir you up more and more to love, to more adoration, to more gratitude and appreciation. And things that are evil will stir your heart up to more self-awareness of what's in you, more opposition to sin. And it'll be physical. Being Christ-like means living like Christ lived as a physical man on this earth. And so there should be an ever-increasing pursuit of honoring God with your physical body. That means your work ethic, your sleeping habits, your eating habits, scheduling of days and weeks, planning out your months and your years, the activities that are going to fill your life up that you're literally going to do. And then also controlling animal lusts and instincts. Bringing your physical body under the submission of the Spirit of God. We have to expect that. If we don't expect it, we're never going to strive for it. So expect sanctification to be in the whole man. Secondly, expect there to be a war. As all these things are increasing, you need to expect that your sinful flesh is going to hate every bit of it. Like Paul said, when I want to do good, that's when evil is lying close at hand. Your body is going to despise new habits. You're going to be deceived into thinking you've gone too far. This is just too much. You're going to notice with increased sensitivity the stark contrast between what you're seeing and what you're believing and how you're acting and everybody else in the world and even evangelicalism. You're going to see it. I'm not like any of these people, and they're not like me. And your mind is going to tell you and your heart's going to tell you that's because... They're free. You're, you're going too far. You're being too legalistic. You're, you're taking this too seriously. And there will be a war. The more intensely you engage in your duties, very often, the more vehemently you're going to feel the opposition. The more you try to think, the more easily your mind is going to wonder. The more you try to do, the more difficult it's going to be to do it with holy motives. We need to expect that war. And what happens as this increases is it forces us more and more to look outside of ourselves to Christ. Even as we see that there's graces strengthening within us, I'm also able to recognize that the effectual power is not mine. That if I'm left to myself, I'm going to fall. As long as I've been a believer, I still can't just get my mind straight and focus. That's pathetic. And that reminds me, I have to look to somebody else. I don't have the strength. And I pray, give me the strength. This humbles us when we recognize, even after decades of walking with Christ, that we are so fickle in our ways, so weak in our efforts apart from God. And it's, it may not be in every circumstance, it may not be that the person is actually as fickle and weak as they 
think themselves to be, but that, in, that sensitivity to themselves increases, and their sensitivity to their need of God increases, and so it feels that way. It humbles you when you've experienced this for far longer than you think should be necessary. So we expect it to happen in the whole man. We expect a war. And thirdly, then we need to fight that war biblically. I'll read you several texts with little comment. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Starve your corruptions. Make no provision. Give no room in thought, in practice, in schedule, in relationships. Give no room for the enemy of your soul to stir any of your corrupt passions. Don't give it the time of day. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Have your mind and your heart and your will taught and led by the Word of God. Make it your constant habit to do that no matter what. Do not make a habit of going against your spirit-illuminated conscience. The Scripture says this, and my conscience pricks me. I don't know if it's right or wrong but I feel it, then go with what you're feeling until you're educated otherwise. Don't make a habit of going against a conscience educated by the Scriptures, even if it's something that you're not really all that clear on. Walk by the Spirit. Make that habit. At least, if nothing else, you'll just increase in your discerning of the Scriptures or whatever, but you'll have a clear conscience in doing it. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Set your mind on godly things. Take that list. Make a list. If you're thinking about thinking about something, just walk down that list, and if you can check off Every box in that text, think about it. If you can't, don't think about it. Pick something else. Think on these things. Set your mind. Because it starts in the mind and moves through the affections. Philippians 4.9, the next verse. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Set your mind on godly things. Take advantage of godly examples. Find somebody. Somebody that's two steps ahead of you and follow their example. Look to Christ. Look to the Apostle Paul. Read biographies of men. Watch their example and follow them. This is how we fight the war biblically. As we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, make use of the fellowship of the saints. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. We have Christ We have a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. We have a church body. We need to make use of all of these things and wage this war. Don't be afraid of the war. We've got the victory. The victory's been won. As we read in the text, God will finish the sanctification process. He's not an incomplete Savior. He will do it. We have the power. We have to make use of the things that God has given to us. Let's pray and then we'll stand and we'll sing.